www.ipe.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And as always, we're so glad that we can be together. If you are a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Uh, And if you have an issue that you've been wrestling with in your personal life or ministry or family, and you'd like biblical help on some passage that you're not certain as to its meaning and application, if we can be of help today, it would be our pleasure to serve you. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us locally at 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. When you call, you're welcome to go on the air live. We always give preference to live callers. Uh, But if you don't want to go on the air live, you can simply dictate your question to Deb and she'll shoot it to us here on the screen in front of us. So, Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and we do already have a live caller standing by, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. It it was apropos, Pastor, that you brought up on the Sunday sermon about uh, the role of women in the church. I think I had probably the longest discussion, perhaps I could say argument, I've ever had by bringing up that very question about the role of women in the church last week. And I was discouraged and disheartened by some of the comments made by both men and women. And it just, it just, it was just really, really disheartening that so many people don't have a clue what the Bible says about this or don't understand it or don't want to. And I think it's probably because of the way of the world today, um, the feminist movement, I don't know, but it was, it's, it's disturbing to me how so many people know so little about God's Word. And I just wanted to, you to hear what you had to say about that. Well, it, it's a fantastic comment, and it's a real point of rub right now in the body of Christ. I have two messages that I preached on this in May of 2015. One is from 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 10, and the other is from 1 Timothy 2, 11. Uh, so I spend, uh, and then I did a third message uh, on 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 15. So three messages I did in June of 2015 uh, concerning the roles of men and women in the church. And this is really very, very important because we've just witnessed in the largest evangelical Protestant denomination a lot of consternation over this issue. And it's largely due to the fact that so many are untaught. And uh, interestingly, it's the younger generation that is creating all the, uh, you know, quagmire of theology 
which is unfortunate, and it just shows that they're untaught. They really do not understand what God says, and people throw a verse at you. What about Deborah? What about Miriam? What about Philip's daughters? And so on, and they try to argue that a woman can be a pastor, or then you have some in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, who try to dichotomize the difference between the local church and the parachurch. Of course, when Paul wrote the New Testament, there was no such thing as the parachurch. The parachurch, in terms of church history, is only about 150 years old. But their argument is, is that the parachurch uh, does not have to obey and respond to the same commands that Paul gives them the local church. And therefore, a woman could stand up and preach the Bible at the Southern Baptist Convention or even be the president of the SBC and not be in violation of scripture. Again, the, the rationale for that is incredibly weak for several reasons. One is right, right before Paul gives the admonition, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He gives a command that he wants women to dress in a way that's both modest and discreet. So does that mean that only applies to the local church and that a woman can dress unmodestly in, in a nondiscreet fashion outside of the church or in some parachurch setting? Of course not. So it's really, really sad what's happening. And people are arguing, well, we need to empower women and we need to do this to affirm their gifts. Well, no one who has taught that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man has argued that a woman's gifts should not be used. A woman can be gifted in the same way a man can, even with the gift of pastor teacher. But there's a distinction in the New Testament between the gift of pastor teacher and someone who serves in the office of pastor teacher. And so God is clear that it's, a, it's an office for a man, and it's not because he's down on women, but because he has a different call. But you see, in this day where we're totally uh, blurring gender distinctions, and we uh, don't want, you know, women to, uh, you know, do what God's called them to do, uh, we, we say they can do what a man does. And Paul's argument is not only because of the order of creation, that God created Adam first and then Eve to be his helpmate, but also because of the way the fall progressed, that when a woman stepped out of her God-given role, it opened her up to temptation. And the same is true, of course, for a man. If he were to step out of his man-given role, then he would be opened as well to deception and to, to temptation. So Paul argues it was not Adam who sinned, but Eve who sinned. So I would say to anyone listening, uh, think it through biblically. What is important is not what the culture says and what the prevailing evangelical church is saying, but what does God say? And have you really opened your heart enough to the scripture to be willing to study each of the texts that are used to argue for women pastors, women usurping the authority of a man? Have you been willing to study each of those passages in their context? Look, I can make the Bible mean whatever I want it to mean if I tear it out of its context. And when you take a verse out of its context, you pretext it and you distort the meaning of what God has said. And of course, Paul argues not only uh, why a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man, but because of a different call that he has given to her. 
Uh, number one, he has called older women to teach the younger women. We'll actually address this issue uh, on Wednesday night at Community Bible Church as we continue our first series on biblical parenting. It's Biblical Parenting 101. Uh, 102 will be taught, God willing, uh, in the year that will follow after Easter next year. We began this course uh, 10 weeks ago. Uh, right after Easter of this year, but we will uh, come back to it again next year for the second half. But we will be examining this very issue that God has one called older women to teach the younger women. That's not a role that men are to take. That's a role that women are to take. And they're more qualified than men are to teach the younger women how to be effective as mothers in to diminish that role, I think, is to do a great disservice to the body of Christ. And it's to sadly, um, you know, set the next generation up for failure. And look, I, I know and I could start naming names and I I'm not going to do that this morning. But if you will pull back the veneer on some of these women who are espousing this and running all around the country speaking or blogging on their you know, internet blog sites uh, and you pull back the veneer and you actually take a look and see what their kids turned out like. I guarantee you wouldn't want that for your daughters and for your sons, but that's what the fruit of ignoring what God has plainly said. So one leading blogger said this, I'm quoting her directly. We're fighting to be seen as necessary beyond children's ministry and women's ministry. We are fighting to contribute more than hospitality or a soft voice on the praise team. We are looking for leadership trajectories for women in the local church and finding virtually nothing. We watch our brothers receive advocacy and wonder who will invite us and equip us to lead as well. Well, number one, God equipped you to lead if he's given you leadership gifts and not everyone in the body of Christ, just like not all men have leadership gifts. There are some gifts that Paul calls unseemly. They play a background role, but they're not unimportant. And then there are those gifts that are leadership. There is actually the gift of leadership, the gift of pastor, teacher, the gift of pastor. Those are all leadership gifts in the body. So number one, God equips women with the gifts that he has called them to serve in. But a particular gift uh, can be restricted to a particular area. And so if a woman has the gift of pastor teacher, it's to teach women. And there's nothing insignificant about true women's ministry. Uh, and if uh, she is equipped, uh, she should fill that role. And who says that children are insignificant? Oh, yeah, you know, women teaching children. That's just a small thing. We want to we want to do more than just teach children. Look, God created a woman with a mothering heart. And I don't think it's by accident that very often in most churches and in most ministries, when it comes to teaching women, the majority of the teachers tend to be women. In fact, even if you're a single woman, uh, children tend to view you as a mother. And God wrote that into their DNA and my wife would always say, you know, yes, I can teach men, just little men. And I think of the men in our own home that she's shaped to be leaders now in the body of Christ. And I think of the hundreds of children that she has taught over the years. Every Wednesday night for 25 some years, she's taught children. 
and she loved it. She has taught children's Bible classes. She's participated in vacation Bible school. She has had Bible clubs in our home and all those lives that have been shaped because she as a woman has been willing and wanting as God directed for her to build into the lives of children. That's not insignificant. So we're, we're turning things upside down and it's all part of the gender blurring that is happening that has walked right in the front door of the evangelical church. We don't want to turn off the millennials because you see this young group of so-called evangelicals and I wonder how many are tear and how many are genuine wheat but they're being shaped by the culture rather than by the word of God. It's the fruit of the seeker sensitive church where people are ignorant of doctrine. And so they're easily persuaded to go in the wrong direction. All right. Very good. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes. Uh, thank you for taking my call, Pastor Brogy and Rick. Um, my question, Pastor, is, uh, I've heard a traditional argument for a pre-tribulation rapture uh, coming from Thessalonians where it says that we are not reserved for wrath. And my question is, is that is that really saying that we're not going to go through the tribulation, or is that maybe referring to uh, what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2, uh, where he's talking about uh, someone who pre-salvation is the uh, object of wrath? Well, it's a good question, and many would argue that it's not an either-or, but a both-and because certainly God has not destined us for the eternal wrath of God. And as you reference Ephesians 2, that by nature, the unbeliever, and before we were saved, we were, Paul argues, by nature, children of wrath. But God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But it's equally argued that one aspect of the tribulation period is the wrath of the Lamb. And so do Christians experience the wrath of the lamb? And there are different expressions of wrath in the Bible. For instance, there is current day wrath that Romans 1 speaks of. The wrath of God is being revealed. There's tribulational wrath. There is eschatological, the final eternal wrath of God. But I certainly wouldn't build the pre-tribulational rapture just alone on First uh, Thessalonians 5, though I think it's an interesting argument because he says as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have need of, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why? Because or for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is not referenced in the Bible to a single particular 24-hour day. Now, it is true that the word day in the Bible, whether it's in Greek or in Hebrew, when accompanied by a number, always refers to a literal 24-hour day. And so, like one of the arguments in Genesis in our day is people say, well, the days in Genesis can't be 24-hour days, but they're long days or days with big gaps between them. But there's a number associated, plus the phrase evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two. Not to mention that in the 400 plus uh, references outside of Genesis 1 and 2, where the day, the word yom is associated with a number, it refers to a 24-hour day. But we want to read into the text modern-day science to make it applicable in our day. But God's word doesn't need any help. 
but the day of the Lord, much like even in Genesis, there's one expression where uh, it speaks of the day referring not to a single day, but the six days of creation. Even today, we speak of the day of his youth, not that he was a youth for one day, but for a period, prolonged period of time where he was considered a youth. Well, the day of the Lord in the Bible begins with the 70th week of Daniel, which uh, the prophet writes of, that Jesus speaks of, that Paul deals with in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's the 70th week of a of the 70 week prophecy of Daniel, which is designed to bring Israel to faith. And so it begins with that and it goes all the way through the millennial reign of Messiah. And it has the characteristics of a day, a day in Jewish theology uh, starts in the evening and it ends in the evening. And so the Sabbath begins on Friday night and they look for the first bright star in the sky, actually three And they argue, okay, the Sabbath has officially begun, but they get ready for it as it begins to get dark. And I believe we're seeing the shadows of the coming day of the Lord. But when the church is removed, it will get very dark and it will get darker and darker and darker as dark as night, not just spiritually, but literally physically. We're right before the coming of the son of man. The sun will be darkened. The stars will literally fall from the heavens and the appearing of the son of man will come and then it will get as bright as can be for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, it will get dark again. So there are many bases for arguing for a pre-tribulational rapture. Let's just take the day of the Lord, the phrase that I just used. Uh, It's interesting that, again, it has the characteristics of a biblical day from dark to dark. Well, the day of the Lord starts dark, it gets bright, and then at the end of the thousand years, it gets dark again when Satan is loosed and he's able to tempt the nations. Now, who is he going to tempt? Remember, when you are resurrected, you receive a body like Christ. That's what Philippians 3, 20 and 21 affirms. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says that this mortal must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable. When we see him, John writes, we shall be like him. So we will receive a glorified body like Christ. Our salvation will be completed. And in a resurrected body, we will not be able to sin. And God, to affirm that, will even have us eat from the tree of life, which would have sealed Adam's destiny as a righteous, unfallen person. But of course, he chose to eat from another tree. That doesn't mean we're not free anymore. um, But understand that when you choose Christ, you make an eternal decision that can never, ever be undone. So if indeed no one who is unrighteous can enter the coming millennial kingdom, and there are many images in our study of Revelation, we will cover this of where God removes the the goat from the sheep, the goats from the sheep. He'll remove the bad fish from the good fish. He'll remove the tear from the wheat and nothing unrighteous is going to enter the kingdom of God. Only those who've been born again, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, that kingdom will literally go for a thousand years. Now, the church is caught up first, and he has argued that in First Thessalonians 4. One of the questions some of them had 
is in reference to their brethren who had already died. They weren't questioning, are these brethren who died going to be resurrected? The doctrine of resurrection is not uniquely New Testament. Job affirms it. And Job lives during the time of the patriarchs. I know positionally it's found right before Psalms, but he lives during the time of Abraham. And he affirmed the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, Daniel affirmed the doctrine of the resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked in Daniel 12. Jesus argues from Moses, from Genesis to the Sadducees who denied the doctrine of the resurrection uh, on the basis of a verb tense, not I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham in the doctrine of the resurrection, something that the Sadducees denied. So the question the church at Thessalonica had is, did we misunderstand you, Paul? Did we um, miss the rapture? Maybe the rapture doesn't happen prior to the day of the Lord. Did we really misunderstand you? Because um, it seems that we're under great persecution. And so Paul in his first letter says, we don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about those who are asleep so that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope, because if we believe Jesus died and rose again, and that's the testimony of every born again Christian, God will bring with him from heaven those who have died, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is what Jesus thought, um, that by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So actually, no, they will be a part of the kingdom. In fact, they'll be the first to be resurrected. So in the rapture, you have verses where the Lord takes us to heaven. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus gave a promise in the upper room that he would take us to heaven. And that's what first Thessalonians four is teaching that we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture is a distinctly different event from the second coming where Jesus comes to the earth. Now, people get around this. The amillennialist says, well, Israel, you know, abandoned all the promises that God made to her or the Messiah would literally rule on David's throne because of her disobedience. And they have to spiritualize all those texts. But look in the Christmas message when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary he made her a promise that has never yet been fulfilled. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. That has never happened where Jesus was given the throne of his father, David, but he will be given that throne when he comes to rule and to reign. So stick with me now. If the church goes up prior to the rapture and then during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, people are saved. And indeed they are. John describes a number that no one can count. And they are saved through the evangelistic efforts of 144,000 Jews. And then, of course, Jesus describes this time in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 is an unparalleled time in human history. He said, unless those days had been cut short, where God sovereignly intervened, nobody could have survived this period called the time of Jacob's wrath or the time of the great tribulation. 
But for the sake of the elect, the Son of Man comes back to the earth. His feet, just as Zechariah 14 teaches, literally touch the Mount of Olives. All kinds of prophecy that have yet to been fulfilled will be fulfilled. There'll be a river, a living river that will go from Jerusalem all the way down to the Dead Sea, the Bible says, such that the Dead Sea, if you've been there, it's the saltiest piece of water in the world. It's the lowest place below sea level. It, the far end of the Dead Sea is a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. It may be that because God burned that place into the ground, that that is indeed why the sea uh, has the kind of chemicals in it that it does. That's debatable, but I think that's a, uh, a powerful thought to just ponder on because it's a u- unique place on the earth and there's not even a living microcosm of any kind in that piece of water. And God says it's going to be so fresh that the fishermen are going to dry their nets next to it as they um, fish in that place. That's never been fulfilled. There's all kinds of prophecy that deal with the Messiah that have never been fulfilled. So the church is taken out. People are saved during the tribulation. Do tribulation saints die by the multitudes? They're in heaven in the revelation asking God, how much longer will he allow this period to go on where the name of the names of those who have not taken the mark of the beast, where, where their testimony is vindicated. God will answer that prayer when he concludes with the final bulls of wrath that will follow by the literal physical second coming of Christ to the earth. And those who are alive at the end of the tribulation period will be separated. It's called the Kidron Valley. It's also called the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Jehoshaphat that the prophet Joel speaks of, where God will take those who are still alive from the tribulation and he will remove the unbelievers from the believers. Only believers will enter the kingdom of God. Those of us who've already been raptured, we will rule and reign for a thousand years. Various degrees of reward are given. Some are over 10 cities, some over five cities, some over two cities. And we will rule and reign. And those who enter the millennium in their natural bodies will rule and reign, will be a part of that kingdom for a thousand years. Uh, They will live a protracted period of time, just like people did before the great flood. They'll have children, grandchildren, generations of children. The earth will be quickly repopulated. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean my children are. And so my children had to each one make a decision for Christ. By God's grace, they all know and love Christ. Uh, Now their children have to make a decision for Christ. They're not automatically Christians. So believers in resurrected bodies and in natural bodies enter the millennial reign of the Messiah. Some will have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great, and their offspring will have to decide for Christ. You'd say, why wouldn't they decide? Jesus will literally be ruling in Jerusalem. Not all will decide any more than all decided when he was here the first time and he walked on the earth. This time will be different though. The government, of course, the governments of this world will rest on his shoulders. Just as Isaiah said, that's yet to happen, but it's going to happen. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Satan will be bound, but we will see really how magnificent God's grace is in our salvation with no devil even around. Uh, We will see that man will still rebel. In fact, there'll be a joint effort 
by the unbelievers of the world who will come against Jesus at the end of the thousand years when Satan is loosed and they'll try to throw him off his throne and then God will create a new heaven, a new earth and will enter into the eternal state. Now, if you interpret the Bible plainly, you can come to no other conclusion but a pre-tribulational rapture. So when you look at these verses, the amillennial says, well, the only event that is yet to happen is the second coming. So the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse, with the exception of the visible return of Jesus from heaven, is all history. They say it was all fulfilled before 70 AD. Well, they're very inconsistent in the way they interpret the Bible, because how are the prophecies for the first coming of Jesus fulfilled? Literally every single prophecy. Dr. Walverd counts 333 prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah. Every single one of them was literally fulfilled. Why should we think that the prophecies for the second coming would be fulfilled any differently? They won't be. And so you have to really spiritualize and allegorize the book of Revelation, the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Israel. But this is what replacement theology does. They have no choice. It's built on some false premises that John Calvin had, that the church is the new Israel, that we've replaced Israel. And it, so, so most of them don't argue for a post-tribulational rapture. The post-tribulational guy has great difficulty. Think about it, because if we go up at the end of the tribulation and we all come, we, we make a U-turn. If, you, if you're post-trib, if you're post-trib pre-millennial, that is, if you think the church goes up at the tribulation and that Jesus is going to still literally rule on the earth for a thousand years, then who on earth can you get to sin at the end of the millennium, especially if he's removed all unbelievers from entrance into his kingdom? You, you, there's nobody there's, because you can't sin in a resurrected body. So what the uh, millennialists uh, who says there is no literal millennial reign of Christ logically does, he, he just eliminates all that. There's no coming antichrist. He's already been here. Some would say it was Nero and they identify all these people prior to 70 AD and none of them can agree as to who it was. Uh, all the prophecy in Revelation was fulfilled prior to 70 AD. But again, you have to rationalize that Jesus speaks of a time that will encompass the whole world. There's never been a time of tribulation that has encompassed the whole world, never ever in recorded human history. And we only have 6,000 years of recorded history, which is, um, I think, the time that we've been around here. So again, these are important issues. Stick with me through the revelation, because I will deal with these issues in depth as we work our way through it. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we have another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. Well, good you're morning. there. Yeah. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. Go ahead. Right. Um, yes. My question is why do organizations and pastors or church members preach so hardly against the doctrine of eternal security and say what we say, but when it comes, when they sin, Suddenly, they want to adapt that teaching to their lives, or they'll say, "You know, God covered multiple sin, or I'm, I'm kept, or I kept by the power of God." Suddenly, they'll apply themselves, "Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm by the grace of God here." You know, they preach against it, but when it comes to their sin, suddenly they want to apply it and adapt it to themselves. It's like a double standard, ain't it? That's right. The the only people who lose their salvation is somebody other than themselves. They've committed some sin. I haven't done it because I'm secure as a pastor, so to speak, in practice. But but somebody out there has done it, and somebody's going to do it. 
And unfortunately, it, it comes from not letting Scripture interpret itself. And th- this is where the error comes. If over 150 times in the New Testament, God affirms the eternal security of the believer, which he does, and you have about eight to ten passages, two being duplicate, meaning parallel texts, where it says the same thing in one book as it does in another, that appear to say that you can lose your salvation, uh, a good principle of interpretation is you interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. If you believe God inspired the whole Bible right down to the smallest stroke of a pen, which is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right down to the tense of a verb, which he demonstrated by his argument to the Sadducees, right down to the difference between a singular word and a plural word, as Paul did in his argument to the Galatians between the use of the word seeds, plural, and the, the word seeds, singular, referring to Jesus. If that's how inspired the Bible is, then it cannot be broken. There are no mistakes. There are no errors at all in the word of God. And so with that being said, a good rule of thumb is you interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. So by illustration in Luke 8, 13, and I read it from Luke's account because it's unique to his gospel. The parable of the sower is found in all three synoptic gospels. Sin means same, optic see. They see through the same lens. Now they write the same material to three different audiences, but there's a lot of parallels between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John being kind of a gospel in and of itself. No parables at all in John's gospel, unless you take the parable of the vine and the branches as a parable, which is, I don't think is a parable. It's an illustration. doesn't have the characteristics. So there's no parables at all in John's gospel. And there are seven miracles that are recorded, five that are unique to him. Of the 36, 38 miracles that Christ does, uh, John only records two that are found in the synoptic gospels. With that said, uh, in Luke 8, 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. They have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. And so the pastor who says you can lose your salvation, he says, see, there it is. They believe for a while that they, they were saved, but then they fall away. They lose their salvation. Again, I argue it from Luke here because Mark and Matthew don't add this phrase. They believe for a while. By the way, the gospels, in fact, nowhere in the scripture is there any contradictions And the Gospels only complement one another. They never contradict one another. So one Gospel writer notes that uh, uh, one of the disciples cut off a slave's ear. Another Gospel says it was Peter. Another Gospel says it was the slave's name was Malchus. And still that, as Luke notes, probably as a physician, he uniquely notes that Jesus healed it. So again, no contradiction, they only complement. So if you read the parable of the sower just out of Mark in Luke's gospel, you'd say, oh yeah, he's talking about three kinds of people who don't receive Jesus, and then one kind that has a receptive heart that do receive Jesus as Lord. But when you come to, to Luke 8, 
he gives us some further insight that those on the Rockies are those who believe for a while. That is, they give intellectual assent. And so again, scripture interpreting scripture. If God says 150 times plus in the New Testament, I can't lose my salvation. Maybe he means something other than believe in terms of saving belief. And when you do a little study on this, you discover that every time the word believe is used, it's not always used in reference to genuine saving faith. An obvious one would be the demons believe and tremble. Oh, does that mean they were saved? No, they, they believe. They currently momentarily believe. In fact, every time you hear a demon's voice in the Bible, he speaks with great orthodoxy. You are the Holy One of Israel. Uh, that, that's a true statement. You're the son of the living God. That's a true statement. Um, they believe a lot of things that are true. Lord, please don't send us in the abyss. They believe in a coming judgment. A lot of demons are more orthodox in their belief. They affirm Jesus is Lord, that there's a coming judgment, etc. than some liberals are in our day. But that doesn't mean they're saved. Simon, the sorcerer, is said to have believed, but it's not accompanied with a preposition in. Every time you see the word believe in, it's always a reference to true, saving, genuine, born again faith. But Simon just believed. He gave intellectual assent, so much so that they took him at his word and they baptized him. But when Peter comes down and he gives the spirit of God through the laying on of hands, which is a unique occasion to the Samaritans and God allowed the spirit rather than to be given the moment they believed, which was the norm in the book of Acts, and certainly by the time the epistles are written, the moment you receive Jesus, you are given the Spirit of God. It was unique there in Acts 8 because these are the first non-Jews, non-Gentiles who are saved. And God knew the potential for a divided church because Samaritans were hated. And so they were viewed as second class people because they had intermarried Gentiles and Jews. And so Gentiles didn't like them and Jews didn't like them. They were despised people. And of course, Jesus was committed to reaching one such lady at a well one day. In either case, God affirmed that there is one church and that they had the same spirit of God that those Jews had received at Pentecost. So Simon believed and he saw the giving of the spirit through the laying on of hands and he wanted to pay for this power. And Peter says, you're still an unbeliever. You're in the gall of bitterness and the iniquity of your sin. You, you haven't been saved. So um, you're right. There's not a consistency of those who teach eternal security. They always talk about some sin that somebody has committed or could commit, but they've never committed it. Uh, it's always somebody else, but it's poor teaching. It's bad theology. And generally speaking, this is what you will find. Churches that teach you can lose your salvation what people end up hearing is a very mushy plan of salvation, a very confusing message. And I have found that churches that teach that you can usually flip a coin 50, 50 chance when you meet someone from a church like that, whether they even know what the plan of salvation is, because what they end up hearing is if you can do something to lose your salvation, then you have to do something to earn that salvation and keep that salvation in the very essence of the gospel salvation by grace alone through faith alone is lost. And this is why when it was introduced during the time of the reformation, 
uh, there were Protestants who said, these people aren't even believers. They're sheer heretics because they have muddied the gospel of grace. Now, I think a believer could hold to the fact that you can lose your salvation, but it's poor teaching, it's bad theology, and it leads, instead of to holiness, a passion to follow Christ, it leads to a lot of confusion, and some people end up never hearing the gospel. All right, very good. Thank you, caller. And we do have another live caller on the line. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, good morning. Um, This is kind of a strange question. I'm not sure how good or bad a question it is. At any rate, recently I've been in two different churches where communion was offered and they offer actual wine. Now, I don't believe I should drink. I don't drink. So I um, took the bread part of the communion, but I did not take the wine part. What I mean, what is the correct thing to do when you're in a situation like that? It's a good question, and I, I, I can appreciate it. I know of one church where they offer two lines, real wine and grape juice. At least they're expressing some sensitivity there and that they recognize that there are people who've been saved out of alcohol backgrounds. Um, look, uh, alcoholism is a huge problem in Eastern Europe all across all the former Soviet countries, whether it's Ukraine, Romania, Moldavia, Russia, you talk about an alcohol problem, it is gigantic. Uh, What we have here in the United States dwarfs the kind of problem that they have. And I've spoken to some of the pastors how foolish it is for them to have used real wine in the communion table, especially in light of all these people who've been saved and delivered out of an alcohol background. And so they come to the Lord's table, which should be a time of blessing. And so what does it become? A time of temptation. And they fall into sin because of it. And it's well documented. That very thing has happened. And so some of them in their wisdom said, you know, we don't need to offer wine. The Bible says the fruit of the vine. It actually never says wine. Never once does it say wine in reference to the Lord's Supper. It says the cup never once says wine. Now, was it wine? Well, understand wine could be used in two scenarios in the Bible. The word oinos could be used of just fresh grape juice. They didn't call it grape juice. They called it wine. Now, in our culture, we distinguish between what we would call fresh wine, just squeezed out of the grape, versus fermented wine by calling one grape juice and the other wine. In the Bible... They did not make that distinction. And of course, you get your Christians today who say, well, Jesus did the first miracle by producing wine. And therefore, you know, he's giving us permission to drink. It doesn't ever say anything about the kind of wine. In fact, the argument they use is actually stupid. It's beyond stupid. It's blasphemous if they really thought about what they were saying. Um, Fill the water pots with water so they fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, oinos, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, if you have the New American Standard, it says drunk freely, and it gives an alternative way you could translate it, or have become drunk. You could actually translate the Greek either way, drunk freely, 
or have become drunk. In fact, there's only one English translation that goes with the marginal reading, and that's the NIV. Look, some of the guys in the NIV translation board, I think, were less than honorable. They started with the premise that they did not believe the Bible was inerrant. And of course, I think they've seen the fruit of that initial translation board with now the new, new NIV that came out in paper in 2011. But they alone go with the marginal reading. Why did the, all the other translations go with the way it's read in the New American Standard? Because they think that's the best way to render the Greek. Think about the implications of if it read as it does in the NIV. Every man who serves the good wine first and when the people have, you know, drunk freely, become loaded, so to speak, and they can't tell the difference, then they bring out, you know, the cheap stuff. So that argument is really a dangerous argument. So think your way through this. This is really important. I think what he is speaking here is not so much of the kind of wine it is, fermented versus grape juice, fresh wine, but the quality that he's speaking of. And so if you come over to my house and we're going to have lunch, I'm going to pull out the roast beef and the best stuff I have, the Coca-Cola. But if I run out of roast beef and Coca-Cola, I say, well, go ahead, honey, get out the bologna. You know, that's all we got left. And get out Dr. Check, not Dr. or Dr. Wiz or whatever it is, this, this second rate stuff, you know, and that's what you do. And um, but don't let's not think for a second that Jesus was helping to make people drunk. That, that, that's blasphemous, that, that sheer, uh, you know, uh, a wicked thing to say of our Savior. So I think it's very unwise for a church to serve real alcohol at the Lord's table. Very, very foolish on their part. Um, and again, <clears throat> there are two manuals that Jews followed. One was a rabbinical manual. It's called the Talmud. Another is called the Didash, which was a second century Christian manual that was written. It's one of the oldest pieces of literature outside of the scripture that Christians have ownership of. And it was a second century AD pastoral manual for young pastors in one of the write-ups in there, lest they be guilty at the Lord's table of using strong drink, which was just fermented wine, not the distilled alcohols that come a thousand years after the Bible was written. They were to mix it in a five to one ratio, excuse me, a four to one ratio. The Talmud said a five to one ratio. Why? Because they didn't want to be guilty of using strong drink. And obviously they didn't have the preservatives that we have today, where if you squeeze fresh grapes, you can put some chemicals in it so that a year later it's still not fermented and it will retain uh, a non-fermentation quality. Uh, They didn't have that in New Testament times, and neither did they want to be guilty of violating God's command not to use strong drink. And so that's how they mix it. So I think it's very foolish uh, for a church to do that. And I respect your your decision not to participate in the cop. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. We've got a uh, emailed question from Luke in Reader, North Dakota. He writes, how would you respond to someone who says that Revelation 1 verse 1 means that the things were going to happen shortly, as the King, Jer- King James Version says, uh, and that the original readers, um, I guess first century readers, would have seen them happen during their lives. 
Well, it's a good question, and um, Luke may not know it, but I am actually teaching the book of Revelation right now at Community Bible Church. We've been in it for over a year, and we're just in the 13th chapter, just started the 13th chapter. So we're about halfway through it. Uh, With that said, in terms of the actual length of the chapters, with that said, uh, what we read here in Revelation 1.1, I've preached on the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and signified or communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So the question you're asking is the things which must soon take place. And so you're, you're a good reader. You're observant. Uh, what do we mean by soon? I mean, after all, this was written 2000 years ago and it appears that very little of what John writes has literally actually taken place. Well, interestingly, seven times he uses this word soon. It can also be translated quickly, uh, like in the uh, HCSB, which is the Southern Baptist translation, Holman Christian Standard Bible. Um, The Net Bible goes with soon. The King James goes shortly. Uh, It's dealing here not with the time of time, but the kind of time. And that's an important distinction to make in your mind as you read your English Bible. The Bible speaks not only of the time of time, but the kind of time. And so the word here soon is the Greek word taxus. Uh, We get our word tachometer from it. Uh, You have a tachometer in your car that shows the revolutions per minute. Uh, Most of them are built in in the 70s. If you were cool, you strapped it up there on the steering wheel and you put one in. It didn't make your car go faster. It just told you what it was doing. Uh, The word can be translated suddenly. In fact, the same word is translated in other places quickly. Um, So, again, it's speaking of the fact that once these events that are described in this book begin, they will unfold very, very fast. And as we've been studying, there's a rapid fire series of events that are so evident in the seal judgments, the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments, actually the seal, the trumpet, and then the bowl and the seal judgments take longer than the trumpet judgments and the trumpet judgments take longer than the bowl judgments. In fact, when the bowl judgments come, it's boom, 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 second coming. I mean, you can hardly blink. They're so fast. And that's the point of what the Lord is saying, that when these things begin to happen, look out, they're going to happen very, 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 very fast. And that's the usage of the word as it's used some seven times here, Texas in the Revelation. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Very good. I think we've got time for one more. Bonnie writes, is there a Bible commentary that you recommend? Well, there are a couple that I often encourage people to consider. One is called the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the BKC. Uh, It's a little more of a technical two-volume commentary uh, that I think is very, very well done. Uh, It uh, has at the end of each book a bibliography. So like if you were dealing with the book of Romans, what it does, unlike a lot of one volume, some are just like one volume on the new Testament or two volumes, one in the old, one in the new, some of those one volume commentaries, obviously they're giving very limited, you know, commentary in what they write. If the whole Bible, the whole new Testament is done in one volume and the whole old Testament is done in one volume. Um, they unfortunately just write kind of the obvious, 
and the things that most people could just figure out by cross-referencing. The good thing about the BKC is it tends not to deal with just the obvious. It deals with the more difficult text, and it assumes that you can figure out the more obvious things. And that's going to be, I think, most helpful to you. It came out in the 1980s. Uh, It's been out for so long now. If you go to buy it at a Christian bookstore, it probably costs you $160. If uh, you buy it together, you'll save a little money. Maybe it will drop it to $140 if they're cellophane wrapped together. If you go to half.com, which is the eBay side of used books, and you just typed in Bible knowledge commentary, I guarantee you'll find it probably for $25, both, both volumes. And you'll pay a small, small amount. And that's a good thing if a book's been in continual print. And usually the only books that are in continual print are those that have been of great help to the body of Christ. Uh, on average, there's about 30,000 new books that are released every year in evangelical presses. Only 1% make a second printing. But if a book's been in continual print for 30 years, you know, oh, it must be, must be really helpful. So what's good about the BKC is then at the end of a given books, let's say you're studying Romans, it will give you a list of uh, commentaries that are just on Romans. And, you know, like I have one commentary set on Romans that is five volumes just on Romans. And then I have a lot of one volume commentary, some hundreds of pages. I have a thousand page commentary just in the gospel of Luke. Um, it's huge. And that, that one commentary on Luke is about the size of the entire, maybe a little bit longer. I'd have to check the page numbers than the whole one volume BKC New Testament. So you can go much further. And I say it's a good reference tool there where you say, you know, I really want to go further with this and want to study it in more depth. You're going to find a list of good conservative works that will be very useful to you. So that's probably where I would steer you to start. Okay, I think we can do one more then. Uh, Robert from Riverside, California writes, how does the Bible say that Abraham offered his only son Isaac when he had another son, Ishmael? Uh, we won't have enough time for that. That's a 10-minute question. Uh, let's come, you got another short one? Okay. But remind see. me, we'll hit that last time. It's, a, right. it's a critical question. Sounds good. Um, which Bible do you recommend? I see Logos, uh, or Bible apps do you recommend? Well, you mentioned the Lagos uh, Bible program. It's a very good one. It's been marketed under different names. It was originally called um, CD Word. That's it came out on a CD and you had to have a CD external drive. And I was one of the original testers for it. And then they called it Lebronics and now it's called Lagos. And the good thing about buying a piece of Bible software is you can package together a number of books very inexpensively. For instance, the book I just referenced, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, that's going to be on Logos. So you'll get that book. In fact, it depends. There are various packages that go from $400 to $2,000. And you can get, you know, 50 books versus, you know, uh, 500 books or whatever. And then you can add on books. But you'll get a ton of books. And beyond the, those are just commentaries. But beyond that, you'll get like every major English Bible translation that would be very, very helpful to you. So if you wanted to see what the Net or the King James or the New King James or the RSV or the New RSV or the NIV 87, the NIV 2011, the TNIV, the NAS 98, 
uh, the NAS 7. You'll, you'll get all these different kinds of Bibles, just dozens of them. So you can compare readings. And sometimes that can be very helpful because there's not always a single English word that will best translate it. Well, we're out of time. Another hour has slipped away. Uh, tomorrow at Community Bible Church, we'll continue our series on biblical parenting. We invite you out for that. We'll be examining part two of the uh, role of a mother in the home. What does that look like? What has God called her to? What are her responsibilities? This will be posted in just a few minutes at wagp.net. Thank you. Mm-hmm.